17, 1 through 8. Salvation versus insurance. After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. Thou yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadows them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their feet and were saw afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus also. The most important study on the study of religion is Hastings' Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics. Volume after volume, it gives you all the data you want and a great deal you don't want about every religion and cult under the sun. In the 12th volume of Hastings' Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, there are 60 pages on worship. Worship among the Hindus, the Buddhists, the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Teutons, and so on. Since the type is small and the pages are large, it actually is a parasite book. When you have read the 60 pages on worship at Hastings, you find that really you know next to nothing about worship the world over. The writers have strained every gnat and swallowed every camel, trying to come up with a description of worship in the various religions of the world. The reality is that there is very little that can be called worship in pagan religions. The trouble with the encyclopedia, as with many people, is that the authors have a Christian concept, a biblical concept in mind. And then they go out and look for it in paganism. They think, worship, yes, this is something we know. People going to church on Sunday. Therefore, we are going to look for something analogous to this in the pagan religion. And it does not exist. As we have previously seen, in paganism there is not even a day of worship. The idea of a Sabbath, a day set apart for the worship of God, is unknown outside of biblical religion. It was partially imitated from the example of 
Judaism and Christianity by Islam. But even there, it is nothing such as we know. In other religions, no such day exists. They do not have worship. In the Bible, in the Christian faith, Christian worship is organized and congregational. People come together to worship God. It is also personal and it can be private in the privacy of our home. It is personal with respect to the faith, but it is also a corporate affirmation. It celebrates salvation and victory. It involves ritual, but it is primarily instructional and educational because it is a declaration of the word of God. In preaching, in song, in ritual, in all things. If worship fails to do these things, it is not Christian. Pagan temples have no such celebration. They do not affirm salvation, either personal or corporate. They do not gather together to worship and to praise God. The praise of God is an alien factor to paganism. Instead, there is a transaction. We touched on this transaction some months ago. It is important to deal with it more plainly now so that we can understand fully the meaning of salvation. In pagan worship, a person goes to a temple not as a believer, but as a purchaser, a buyer. He is not worshiping a god, he is buying insurance from a god. As a result, the god to whose temple he went depended on what he was buying. If, for example, a, a Greek or a Roman was interested in buying insurance for a journey by sea or a cargo that he was shipping from Alexandria to Rome, he probably went to a shrine of pastor and college to buy insurance against God. If his interest was in love, then he went to a temple of Venus to buy insurance or a guarantee that what he wanted would come to pass. And so he would shop around in terms of getting the kind of insurance, protection, or guarantee that he was interested in. This is the essence of paganism. Pagan religions do not concern themselves primarily and sometimes not at all with worship. They are concerned with 
the purchase of insurance. This is why so much that is said about the American Indian is nothing but sentimental rubbish. The first white men to come here decided that the Indian obviously had certain ideas of what the philosophers in Europe had called natural religion. Natural religion was their thesis as to what all men everywhere no doubt believed. They didn't go out and find this. They concluded that this was true, and then they went out and proceeded to ask natives all over the world questions. Which the natives, being polite, said yes. And so they proved their case. So supposedly the American Indian worshipped the great spirit. And they convinced everyone that this was the case. In fact, they even convinced modern Indians who have had very little education and have read just a smattering about the Indians. And so you have a lot of Indian rabble-rousers today who joined the Civil Rights Movement who are convinced that their worship was the worship of the Great Spirit. The Indians had never heard of any such thing. They had no worship. The heart of their religion was the medicine man. It was a healing cult. They were never, never interested in bowing down to anything or worshiping anything. They were interested only in buying healing and beyond that, protection against certain dangers. This was the essence of Indian religion in the ancient times. And it was the essence of the Indian religion when I was a missionary among the American Indians. Any such thing as we call worship was unknown to them. Thus, paganism is basically the purchase of insurance. Now, this concept of insurance has infiltrated the churches. Wednesday evening, when we were studying the doctrine of the last things, I called attention to the very common belief among many premillennials that the value of this position is that it saves you from the tribulation. You're going to be raptured out of it. So much so that some actually hold to this and profess it because it offers them the rapture. I cited the opinion of one such believer who said, well, what point is there in my being a Christian if I'm not going to be raptured out of the tribulation that is coming? In other words, it was not for her worship of the sovereign God. But faith for her represented insurance. There's a very popular book, one of the best sellers of our day, written by Hal Lindsey in the horror story called The Late Great Planet Earth. It's all about the great tribulation that supposedly is coming and how those who latch on to this insurance policy that Hal Lindsey is selling are going to be raptured out of it all. This is paganism. 
it is not Christianity. Salvation is not insurance against problems, troubles, or tribulations. The apostles were not spared persecution or execution, nor were the early Christians. In the last hundred years, we have seen literally tens of millions, the very least, and perhaps as many as 30 to 40 million people slaughtered for their faith. When the missionaries fanned out the islands of the Pacific, Asia, and Africa in the last century, the killing of converts was a wholesale business on the part of many, many governments and many tribes. In some small sections, Africa, people died by the hundreds of thousands for their faith. In this century, a number of people killed by the Turks, and after that by the communists for their faith, a number of millions upon millions. For these people, there has been no insurance policy. Why should those who go to the Lord not out of any saving faith, but out of a belief in the value of insurance, have any blessing or protection from the law? What salvation offers is not an insurance policy against trouble, but victory in the midst of battle. The assurance that because we are the Lord, we may lose this part of that part of the engagement, but the war is ours. We shall triumph. Salvation does not take away our problems nor give us insurance against them, but it tells us that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That he who has called us and redeemed us through the blood of Jesus Christ, will do yet more and care for us, that step by step, whatever comes our way, he will make it work together for good. He will give us victory in time as well as in eternity, so that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The religious quest for insurance is pagan. All of Scripture speaks against it. And we have a clear-cut indictment of it in our text. Our Lord took three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, to the high mountain, and was transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah appeared and began to speak with him. And St. Luke tells us in his account of the transfiguration in Luke 9, verse 31, that he spake to them concerning his deceit. The word in Greek is literally exodon, or in English, exodus. 
He spoke to them concerning his exodus. The word exodus can mean death. It does mean a journey. He very clearly spoke to them, the law and the prophets from the person of Moses and Elijah, concerning those things which were to come. His journey to Jerusalem, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death and his resurrection. The reaction of the disciples was one of fear. Mark tells us in Mark 9, 6, that when they heard these things, they were sore or exceedingly afraid. This was not what they wanted. We are told by all three evangelists that the disciples had all been dreaming the positions of power in the kingdom. Their whole perspective was thoroughly Jewish, not biblical, but geared to the apocryphal writings which saw a worldwide Jewish empire ruled by the Messiah. They had decided that Jesus was that Messiah. They therefore wanted high places of authority in that kingdom, that worldwide empire. They were arguing as to which of them was most qualified for those positions. And now suddenly the three leading disciples learn that instead of a worldwide empire, there is the crucifixion ahead. They did not want to come down off that mountain. They did not want history to move forward. They wanted to arrest it there. So Peter said unto Jesus, we are told, then answered Peter, answered, answered what? Answered the talk of Moses and Elijah and our Lord concerning the cross. Lord, it is good for us to be here, if thou wilt. Let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias or Elias. Let us stop history. Let us build here three shrines and let people come. If Moses and Elijah are here now and you the miracle worker are here, let the people come here. You can do all things. They can walk up this mountain and be evil. They can see men who are the great men of our history. This is better than a rapture. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Those last three words on earth. Hear ye him. They were not hearing him. They were hearing instead their own desires 
for an insurance policy against trouble. To arrest history and to prevent whatever tribulation might be ahead of them. To stop all the processes and cases of trade. This was their desire. Stand still in the experience of the moment. Calvin says of God's declaration, Hear ye him, and I quote, When he enjoins us to hear him, he appoints him to be the supreme and only keeper of his church. It was his design to distinguish Christ from all the rest, as we truly and strictly infer from those words that by nature he was God's only son. In like manner we learn that he alone is beloved by the Father, that he alone is appointed to be our teacher, that in him all authority may dwell. Hear him. I mentioned a little ago that these words were intended to, intended to draw the attention of the church that Christ is the only teacher. But on his mouth alone is made death. In short, Christ is as truly heard at the present day in the law and in the prophets as in his gospel, so that in him dwells the authority of a master which claims for himself alone, saying, One is your master, even Christ. But his authority is not fully acknowledged unless all the sons of men are silent. If we would submit to his doctrine, all that has been invented by men must be thrown down and destroyed. Unquote. Hear him. All that is invented by men, Calvin said, must be thrown down and destroyed. One of the inventions of men is this idea of religion as insurance. That man is able to command God. That man can take the powers of the universe and say, I have done this, therefore you must do so and so. I come to your temple and I have given offering, therefore you are obligated now to give me insurance against that which I demand or against that which I am afraid of. In our day, we have the same kind of insurance religion, masquerading under a variety of names. One of the names it pretends to is faith. In the last century, a movement began which has today very extensively taken over evangelical Christianity. This victorious light Christianity. Some of its leaders were Trumbull, Hannah Whittall, Smith, James McConkie, A.B. Simpson, W.E. Borgman, A.D. Pearson, and many, many others. These people talked about a second blessing. They declared that as against work to oppose Faith. Now, Warfield wrote a very important book, a two-volume study on perfectionism, criticizing this position, opposing faith to work. What was the problem? 
The essence of their position that faith was a work of man. That's a human effort. And the contrast to work and a work religion is grace, not faith. These people saw man's faith is the way to rise above troubles. If you only believe enough, you will rise above all problems. If you only believe enough, you will avert this and that problem. You will have a higher life. In other words, man by his own bootstrap was to lift himself up. In this kind of higher life thinking, victorious life thinking, God was spoken of as a reservoir of grace that man could draw on. In fact, one of the very common illustrations used was the textbook illustration. God is the great bank in which we have unlimited credit. And all we need to do is to write a check on the bank of heaven. It's all there for us, and we just do it. In other words, everything is placed upon man. His act of faith, it is Pelagianism to the cause. So that in the name of opposing work, these people propagated one of the most flagrant work religions of all time. They made faith into a colossal work You draw on the reservoir. You write the check. You do it all. God is seen as entirely But this is not salvation. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar very quickly came to believe that the God of Daniel and the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was very real. He very quickly saw the moral superiority of these young men. He saw, moreover, that God had saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, so that he was convinced of the power of God. But none of these things made Nebuchadnezzar into a believer. God was still for him another great resource that man could have. His thinking was pagan. He was used to going to the temple of Bel or of Marduk. And there, asking Bel or Marduk for insurance against the enemy, insurance against sickness, insurance for the safe delivery of a child, for anything. And so the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel was simply a more powerful source of insurance for him. The most powerful he was ready to conceive. Nebuchadnezzar was not a true believer. He did not have salvation until after being humbled 
dwelling like an animal for some time. He came to the realization of the absolute sovereignty of God. And the soul saving power of God. And he declared in Daniel 4, 35, that all the inhabitants of the earth are executed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth also, and none can save his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? None can save his None can command it. No man can buy insurance from God. We are the work of his hand. He made us. And by his grace he has remade us. And by his grace he will sustain us and deliver us. And he chooses to Send us before the lion, or under the camps of the communists. He is the Lord, and none save his hand. And in the face of all these things, whatever he does, he makes it work together for good for them that love him, for them who are the called. Such a God can be truly worshipped, and only such a God can truly save man. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of thy grace and mercy has saved us in Jesus Christ, and has delivered us from ourselves in this evil generation. We thank thee that we stand by thy grace. We have the blessed assurance of victory in Jesus Christ. That thou hast in Christ made us more than conquerors with riches in all things. So our Father, we come to thee. To cast our every care upon thee, we care To do thy will, to rejoice in all thy ways, to know that in Jesus Christ we shall prevail. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our election? And the law 
He only valid way of Egyptian. The law gives us an assurance and an assurance. If a nation keeps God's law, God says that nation will be blessed. Now, one of the things that happens when men are lawless is that prediction and planning go out the window. You cannot plan. One of the comments made by a contemporary man is that with our present-day economic policy, economic planning has been destroyed by the planet. Why? Because they substituted man's law for God's law. But this is something radically different from the pagan belief in insurance in a world of total chance. We believe that there is an assurance in a world that God rules when we are within the framework of God's law. It's a very important point. Faith is essential, and our perspective, of course, is that faith is God's grace in us. It's not a work of man. And this is the spiritual aspect of this whole modern ultra-palatian movement, which makes faith into man's highest work. Okay. Yes.
I kind of knew I'd had to tell people, and sometimes I'd had to tell myself too, the same thing. And we sometimes are too prone to kicking ourselves with hindsight and saying, I did the wrong thing there. Because we assume we should have been able to read God's secret will. When we did what was morally right in the situation and what happened was that we simply had no way of knowing the future. Now, we have to accept that sort of thing instead of exercising huge hindsight. And to say instead, I did what was godly and right. I didn't have the wisdom of hindsight. That God is able to make even this kind of mistake work together for good. And so I'll accept it and go on. Well, we know that God has a purpose in everything. And uh, if we say, well, I suppose he has a purpose, we're saying perhaps we depend on the person. Uh, maybe he does, but I can't do it. You see, it just doesn't make sense to me, so I don't know what perfect uh, idea God has behind this. And we often, very simply, wish that uh, God would listen to us. We know how the thing would work out if we were handling it. You see. And this is why it's a mistake to uh, worry too much at times about what God's secret will and purpose is. We know what is revealed will and purpose are. And we can be guided by that. The other is what makes us fret when we spend too much time troubling ourselves about it. Yes. Yes. Man cannot know the mind of God exhaustively. He can know God truly, but not totally. God is true to himself, so that all of that there is in God which the mind of man will never grasp is not in contradiction to that which he has revealed of himself and his word and in Jesus Christ. Yes. Our words of passage, that has to be in its context. I can't recall it. It's a 
in the Proverbs, I believe. Oh, well, I, I know what you're referring to. Uh, the idea there is, don't all try to be sheep instead of Indians. This is an entirely different thing. We all see ourselves as sheep, and very few of us see ourselves as Indians. Yes.
I'd like to urge you to get your reservations in for Saturday, March 18, while seeking your dinner meeting at the Cattlemen's State House at Garden Grove, when we shall have the privilege of hearing Dr. Truman Davis of Mesa, Arizona, speak on the medical aspects of Christ's crucifixion. This is an extremely important subject and a remarkably able speaker. You will hear very, very few speakers to equal Dr. Davis. So I urge you to come and to pass the word on to others concerning this meeting. Let us bow our heads now for prayer. Now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you. This day and all.